Um, my life changed when I was told that by an artist I respected. And that word for me was foreign because I wasn't raised to think of myself as an artist. Now I, I only think myself as an artist. And of course you're an artist, brother. Um, the, the truth being that freedom and interpretation of this journey is the artist's journey. We all have that to offer. One of the tragic realities of institutionalized life is you're not allowed to do that. You get in line, you do your factory work, you go home and you do it again the next day. Being an artist just means you get a chance to do what you love, man. That was Greg Collette sharing his take on the artist's journey. Another old friend today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. If you get a chance before we get started here, please support this podcast by heading over to wetflyswing.com slash members and join the members group. You can join there for about the price of a cup of coffee, um, and this will help us tremendously. And you can take uh, this show deeper and uh, just dig into a little bit. Thanks uh, in advance if you've already been supporting the podcast. Greg Collette, uh, my old friend, goes deep into his uh, Ecuadorian journey. He's been going on this for the last 10 years, living down in Ecuador. Greg shares uh, some tips on creating your own conservation impact today. Why the documentary uh, he's producing has been creating a big buzz and the story of the local people that he lives with. Uh, They're known uh, from the past as the shrunken head people. So interesting little story there as well. I also discover our next big trip and uh, possibly the mission for this podcast, the new mission for this podcast. So without further ado, here is Greg Collette from FogataFilms.com. How's it going, Greg? Hey, buddy. What's up? Not much, man. This has been, uh, we've, this is like a long time coming here. This is, we finally got, we had a little bit of tech issues, but we're, we're, we're live, man. We're going for it. Cool. Hey, we're going to jump into, you've got, um, we've got a history, obviously we've been friends a long time, but you've been doing some cool stuff on the conservation side and just, just history of the, like, we're going to dig into some of the Amazon and, and all of that. But like, before we get, I guess, let's just jump into, let's just tie everybody who doesn't know who you are, um, to kind of uh, where you're at now and how we know each other. Okay, so Dave and I were friends at a really cool place uh, near Nahalem, Highway 53, a really old uh, once Airbnb. We called the Red Barn. We were roommates there for years and had uh, a lot of good experience. It's a beautiful area. I had my gig DJing and working um, in various establishments in mainly Manzanita, a bit in Nahalem. And over the years, Dave and I continued to connect and um, basically share a a space in this house where we had other friends and some celebrating and then lots of time on the river and just things that you do. Of course, we were quite close to the ocean, so we had an access there. So in general, it's a very diverse area, very beautiful. And um, access is pretty easy. It takes some effort, but it's worth it. Uh, I am currently in the town of Las Tunas on the on the Ecuadorian coast, uh, Las Tunas is near what they call the Gold Coast of the Ecuadorian Pacific side. We are um, in an apartment that we are renting for the four-month run here. Our son is in a local Montessori school here, and we want, we want him to have a good access and comprehension of Spanish. So he is currently being challenged 
to really escalate his ability to speak Spanish in this school he's in. The town of Ayampe is where his school is. Yeah, that's great. That's so that gives a little perspective on where you're coming from. And I and I want to talk a little more because, well, I guess some of this is going to be a little catch up with us because we haven't talked in a little while. But we, sure. I, I really want to dig into the movie. So let's leave some of the um, we'll, we'll t- touch base on a little more on the family because I'm interested in that. But let, let's just jump right into this film because you're a film producer, right? I mean, talk about how let, let's first talk about how did you become a film producer? Well, we um, started working on films. I started working with a, a ski company in the Wasatch and started making videos for them up in the backcountry in Big Cottonwood Canyon. I do a lot of backcountry skiing. And so they gave me skis because I was an accomplished backcountry skier. And from that avenue, I started filming for them videos to promote their products. So that's where I first began editing. At that time, I used Adobe, and I was using the first generations of GoPro for the outside content that I was getting. And if anyone knows the Big Cottonwood Canyon area on Big Winters, it's an epic place for backcountry skiing. I lived right at Stone Mountain, so I had incredible access. And that was the birth of my filmmaking career. I began working a bit as an actor as well. I shot, um, I was cast in a film, Master and Commander, down in Baja, California and shot several small films along the way, and started getting more interested in the post-production side of things. Lonnie, my partner, is also a filmmaker and a really excellent uh, director of photography. She was the director of photography on the film Sendero de Vida. She and I started doing things together, and we started having some interest um, after a trip we took to Venezuela, Colombia, and Ecuador for six months, traveling in those countries, some interest in filming down in South America. I have a very old friend who I went to college with in Eugene. His name is Raven. And he had, uh, he and I ran into each other randomly. And we were talking about friends he had in the Pastaza, specifically Luis Quash. We began trying to figure out, Lonnie and I, how we could get ourselves down to South America and possibly work with the Schwar communities that Raven knew. I had been through this country before in 2000, but I hadn't actually met Luis. So that's the thing, that's the process that we went through quite quickly to get ourselves down to the Amazon to begin working on a film with these communities. That's it. And and you've been there. How long have you been there now in Ecuador? We came here April 2012. Wow. <laughs> That right there just blows me away. I mean, it just shows you, I mean, literally eight years you've been, you've been out. Nine years. Nine, nine years. years. Nine, that's right. Nine yeah. years. Nine years. Jesus. Yeah. So we're, we're heading up on a decade. On a decade. So, so explain that. So somebody who's never lived, I mean, probably some of the people listening have been to, you know, Ecuador, at least South America, but what's the, what's it like living there? Compare that to say living there versus say the Redwood. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, the, the first obvious difference is the language is Spanish. What we, Lonnie and I have done, and I must include Lonnie in all of this, because yeah. I wouldn't be here without her support and her um, artistic comprehension and her humility have been incredible traits to keep us, I think, very, very activated and thriving. What we did throughout our visit here is live in indigenous communities. We had a farm that we, run, we ran with a hostel above Pagucha Cascada, above Otavalo, which is in the mountains on the side of Mount Imbabura, 
when we were filming Sendero de Vida, that was our base camp. All of our neighbors were indigenous Quechua. So they speak Spanish and Quechua. This is an Andean culture older than the colonial invasion from Pizarro in Peru in the 1500s. They are what would be, they are the central sort of guides that we began working with indigenous. And our trips to the Amazon were juxtaposed by time with these people. And then our new relationship that we created with Luis Kawash, the friend of Raven. He, Luis Kawash, he is the one that began talking to us about going to these communities that he calls Sendero de Vida and talking with them, filming them, and seeing how they live in their perspective areas. This required horses and canoes and many, many hours of walking. He was our guide. And as we went to visit him, we would bring food and we would bring resources, never money, to these communities. And in doing so, they would allow us to film and stay there. So we would travel there free. Our access was allowed because we brought all the food. And we would bring seven or eight major bags of potatoes and all sorts of resource food for these communities that they would bring out then to these Shuar communities that were very remote. Some of these communities were really far away and access was very um, labored. So based on where we were going, um, we would bring food with us on horseback to these communities. So when we arrived, we arrived with all this food. And of course, everybody was very psyched. So that takes us back to that was the initial movie you did, right? That with the food and is this, and then you had the second, this bigger movie, or is this all connected? No. What What happened is when we were going to these communities, it was clear there was an abundance of projects. Their resources are very limited. They're a hunter gatherer population. They are the first generation of dealing with legitimately dealing with economics. We have interviews with people talking about living without money at all. All of their life, they had been hunter-gatherer. So you add economics, and they have very little experience, and a government that basically gives them very little help. So a lot of these communities had obvious problems. Bridges needed to be made. Schools need to be roofed. Bathrooms need to be built for kids. There was endless amounts of work. So we started realizing we could do projects in these communities, and that's what really started the filming process. All of this is connected to Schwartz and Derrida Vita. It took me three years, four years to edit this four terabytes of information. And all that time we were filming, we would go out there regularly, spend a month, spend two months. And then we'd come back to Chimbaloma, where we lived near our Quechua neighbors above Otavalo. And that's where I would do the editing. So we had two processes. We'd head out to the Amazon on buses with all these bags of food. We'd show up. This was an extensive travel. At that time, we had no car. We would travel a long distance through to Ambato, to Banos, to Puyo, out to Rukmakakamari, Kilometro 63. And there is where Luis and his family lived. That's where the food would arrive. Then we would head from there, walking in on horses, out to the communities, some of them by canoe. The horses would arrive with the food that we brought, and then we'd start working on projects that the communities had in mind. We'd, I would fund the projects, bring the resources to the communities, and then we would work together um, to get the projects completed. In their world, they call that a minga. A minga is when the community gets together, everybody eats, everybody contributes, and everybody gets what's needed done. So that's how we started filming these people. During that process, we went through various different ceremonies. Chonta, a certain ceremony that they do. Ayahuasca, 
a word that everybody is aware of. We went through various ceremonies in these communities as we were doing these projects, and that's how we started filming. We returned back to Chimaloma with all this information. I would download it onto my computer and continue the process of editing the Schwar Sendero de Vida, which we finished in uh, basically the end of 2019. 2020 went, put a kibosh on all festivals for us. So really the, the festival process didn't start for us to 2021 because of the pandemic. Yeah, the pandemic, gosh, and we could, that's a whole, that's a whole nother conversation of how the pandemic. Um, and, bu- bu- and believe me, I have an opinion, but let's not go into Oh yeah, that. yeah, let's not, let's not go into that. We'll keep, we'll, we'll keep politics keep out, out of, of that. Let's keep out of that water. Yeah, let's keep out of that for this one. Um, so I'm interested, I mean, so in, in spell it, just so people, the, the movie, the, the big movie that's out, that's being released around, how do you spell that? S-H-U-A-R is the name of the indigenous population. Sendero de Vida is literally path of life. And this is Luis Kawash's vision of connecting these communities in a region of the Pastaza, where he lives, communities that are linked to his father, communities that are linked to his history. He's a leader in the area and getting these communities and economic opportunity to work independently so that they are not reliant on the state. One of the realities of adding or bringing a modern economy to the Shuar and all indigenous in general is that separates them from their roots. Their history as hunter-gatherers is where they're strong. So connecting all of these communities with a potential economic opportunity was a way Luis felt he could give them more strength and they could remain intact as a vital and necessary part of the Amazon. I always... I always say this to anyone who's really curious why I went there and why we worked so hard there. Primarily, I see those indigenous populations being the most responsible and willing to defend the land from industrialists. They are the ones that live there. They're the ones that have the most to lose. So it seemed to me, after the years I'd experienced in various eco groups, both sides, because I'm not always a big believer that eco groups work. I felt that the groups that were the most dedicated were indigenous, both North and South America. So the South American indigenous I met and I worked with, I did so specifically because I felt if I can give them strength, they will continue to defend their territories. Amazing, Greg. This is, you know, and as I'm sitting here, you're talking, I'm just thinking to myself that, there's some amazing groups out there. The fly fishing space is really amazing because it connects a lot of not only fly fishing to conservation, but also to like you're talking about. I know there's a couple. There's one called Indie Fly, which is run by Oliver, um, who's a guy I interviewed, a very big name in the fly fishing space. But he's created this thing where he basically goes to some of these communities like you're talking similar to your community. And he he helps teach them how to um, take care of them and guide, right? And, and basically make money so they can take care of themselves. And it's this whole thing where, and, and by that, they protect the species and the populations and the habitat and all that stuff. So, Absolutely. I mean, the, the reality of fly fishing or anyone that has a natural love, whether you're a surfer, a fly fisherman, a hunter, whatever it may be, a bird watcher, if we don't protect these resources, they're going to be gone. So the connection is fairly obvious. As far as I'm concerned, the reason that we as backcountry skiers, fly fishermen, surfers, whatever it is you do, kayakers, ride bikes, our responsibility is to stand with indigenous populations because they're the ones that are strongest and the most to lose. We have a lot to lose too. 
We no longer get to do the things we love. And as the rivers get polluted and destroyed by industry, the one thing that we must do then is create a voice to let the world comprehend why we need to preserve these places. And for the obvious reasons, who do we support so they get protected? This is a very slippery slope. This is a very challenging process. We're up against very sophisticated, very wealthy, very rich bankers. And a lot of what we go through is literally fighting against institutions of tremendous power. And in the end, these indigenous populations, who do they have to turn to? These governments have completely uh, abandoned them. Where we go, the Shuar are so rebellious against the government that the government has really cut them off. They have such terrible schools. They have no resources. So that is how our process in these communities was so vital. Like your friend, we were going and saying, okay, what can we work on here to give you guys a strength so you'll remain here? So much of the, of the communities in North and South America, a lot of the youth leaves. They head to the city. They watch too much internet and they want to go be in New York. They want to go be in the city. And a lot of them come back realizing the city is very challenging. So if we can keep them in the Amazon, focused on their natural world, then we do a service to the whole planet and we continue to preserve these resources that we all love so much. That's it. And, and the Amazon is obviously a huge, you know, you, we've seen it in the news for many years. I, I wanted to go, just go back and highlight because I've got these ideas running through my, I mean, we have a conservation piece to our podcast. You know, there's a certain percentage that goes to conservation from profits of the podcast and things like that. But I've been really wanting to dig into something, you know, that I could kind of be a part of. And I mean, this feels like something that, you know, and we've talked a little bit little about this. And, I, and I, the travel thing is another thing that, that I've struggled with. You know, I've been really wanting to get my girls out, get Megan out and do some traveling. And we've talked about like, it'd be fun to go down and, and hook up, you know, with you guys. But you know, I think we should keep in touch because I think this might be an opportunity for us to do something. You know, I, I'm not sure how it works, but maybe connecting where we can get some more resources to help you with your mission. Because, I mean, ultimately, that, that, that would be amazing. What do you, what, what, how does that sound to you when I talk about that? Well, I think it would be foolish if you didn't come down here with your daughters, bro, because obviously you know me, you trust me, and I would take care of you. And it would be the best trip you ever had. It would change their life. Yeah. As as an addition to making a more macrocosm uh, awareness here, what we do now with Serendipity Vita, we bring it to film festivals, the ones that will have us, and we show the world. If people hate the film, I don't care. I want a conversation to start. If that conversation creates a local argument with folks about their own forests, their own waterways, then I feel like we succeeded. It's not about being liked. It's about getting a conversation started, and it's really about bringing happiness to the human race. If you become so one-dimensional in the world of the video screen, and you give away your connection to nature, you give away the biology that makes you spiritually connected, it gives you the opportunity to learn what you need to know. Experience in nature is how you create ideas. The internet lies to us that ideas come with memorization. If you just learn ideas, you have no common sense. Well, th this is really what we're doing. So, I, you know, I'm a passionate person. I, I have a, a sort of skill with language, yep. and I enjoy this because it means a lot to me. What I'm doing now with Sendero de Vida as we bring it through films, the next step, this is just a ring in the ladder. The next step is creating 
other ways to get sustainable economic independence to these Schwar communities. It's not just through tourism. Tourism is one way, but there's other ways to create resource so these indigenous communities have an economics that allows them to stay where they are and thrive. And not needing the state keeps them independent. If they have that, the state cannot control them. One of the weaknesses that happens in North and South America is indigenous populations lose their roots so they have to bleed themselves into an economy that they didn't create, that isn't part of their history, and is often challenging, oftentimes destroying their strength. We can keep them intact to the histories of their peoples, literally their cellular genetic roots. If we can give that to them, they don't leave their communities, they stay strong, the young stay there, they continue to build families that defend the planet, they're the ones that are on the front lines. And I, I don't have any doubt they're going to fight back. Yeah. But if we don't have a camera on the government's behavior, we don't have a camera on the military's behavior, which, of course, is the same. If we don't have a camera on what these bankers in China, international bankers and the states is doing, if we don't have a camera, they don't care. They will access with immunity. And that is our dangerous that's the dangerous water there. So much of the pollution in Lago Agra, for example, where there was a huge lawsuit, happened because no one was knowing, no one knew it was happening. They got away with so much because no one knew what they were really doing, and no one was listening to their story. If the story becomes international, it's one of the few benefits of the internet, I think. We have an ability to bring a lot of people and a lot of awareness, and then we can maybe stop or at least control some of the industrialists attack. As the resources become harder and harder to uh, achieve for these massive nations, they're going to need to take more from the Amazon, water and trees and petroleum. Louise talks about all this in the film. It is a central theme and concern to any leader in the Amazon. Dude, it's a central theme to any leader in any indigenous community, whether you're in Africa, Asia, North America, or South America. It's just literally reality. If you believe Pachamama, Mother Nature, is the guide of your journey and has been forever, you must protect that. And that is going to be challenging because right now, resources are being robbed in Brazil. Resources are being robbed in Bolivia. Our new president here, Lasso, he's another one that wants to sell away resources to keep the bills paid. This is a mounting, and definitely, this is the time. 2021, we are late on it. We have so much work to do. Our small contribution, Sendero de Vida and Fagata Films, is trying to use Sendero de Vida, the film, to create a platform, to create an independent, sustainable economy for this particular communities. But we'd love to go larger. Well, and I love you said that larger because I'm just thinking to myself, okay, we've got lots of people, you know, thousands of people that are going to listen to this. Um, and I'm thinking about like, okay, how do we, um, be both small scale and bigger, but how do we fight back? How do we, how do we get these people? Because I, I feel like there's some stuff we could do here, but somebody listening to this right now might be on a jog. They might be in their car. You know, what would you tell that person to, to like, how can we get involved in this? How can we help? Firstly, look at your own local environment, start tapping into your natural world. Start feeling the vibration of nature in your own heart. Bring your amplification up. Pull yourself out of that one-dimensional world of the video screen and remind yourself and your kids and your grandma and your neighbors, you must go into nature if you expect to learn anything as a human. From that 
from that position, you start looking at the bigger picture, which the internet offers. I'm down here doing that, Dave. I'm really not a massive internet guy. I don't have Facebook. I don't have a cell phone, bro. I don't have Instagram. I don't have um, any of the, I don't particularly like social media, frankly. I have pages on the internet because I must, because that's the age I'm in. If I could pull those all off, I would. I am here on a direct feet on the ground, breathing the air, connecting with nature, showing my son nature so that we can be actively a part of what would be a normal thing, protecting what you love, which in our world is easy because I've divorced myself from a heavy level of technology. So people that can tap into that natural world will want to be a part of, say, the Amazon. You talked about your friend, Indy. What was the the guy's name? uh, Indy Fly. Indy Fly. So this is a gentleman who's obviously figured out there's great water in South America. There's great water in Argentina. There's great water in Chile. There's great water in Ecuador, all of which requiring different types of skills, a lot of it quite extreme. You can easily bring those types of people in any way. We work together to get them down here. Once a few people see this, then they tell some more. That's the way that it works, it seems to me. I don't know how else we do it. You start first with your own feet on the ground. Yes. In the forest. That's it. Paying attention paying attention to what really matters, which is your connection so that your dimensional opportunities go to that third and possibly fourth dimension where you're able to be a part of something that's in you, that is you. You can't walk away from that right now. Technology is very, very attractive. It's like that fire that never stops burning, but it's also there to burn you. You got to remember, you can't just be in technology. Your families, your your neighbors, your kids, they got to know the earth if they expect to have any information that's going to be worth anything. And that's how we start the conversation of global protection and places like where we are. But firstly, you start in your own local places. And, that, and I mean, that's a big part of the reason I do this podcast. I mean, I don't talk much about conservation on it just because we, we have a limited time and I'm really focused on telling stories from the guests. But I mean, my big goal is to really, you know, connect people to that. And like, this is why I think this is so powerful because, and it gives us an opportunity to get down and visit you and who knows where this goes. So I'm excited, Greg. I think this is going to be cool. I think we should definitely, obviously off air, we're going to talk more about how we can put this together, but I feel like there, there's some really cool stuff we can do here. Um, well, one of the things that you and I saw quite a bit when we were in, on the coast, and I've seen it where I might, as you know, I'm from the ranch lands in Nevada. You have uh, groups that have been defined 2020 where people are choosing sides. They're trying to tell the other side that you're totally screwed up. Oh yeah, I don't agree with you. And there's this crazy level of separation, which is one of, unfortunately, the divisive sides of the Internet and television. It's not always a good thing. These separation uh, methods only hurt us. This political mm-hmm. definition only hurts us. It takes us away from the one truth. We all have the same goals in the end. Our blood boils and burns and moves through our arteries in the same ways. And if we can remember that environmentalists and loggers have the same needs. If we can remember that trying to hate on the other is actually only slowing down our process to get something accomplished. If we have any enemies, it's corporations with a 1% profit goal, 1% crowd getting all the profits that want us to be separated. That's, I think, a very important part of the maturity. One of the disciplines we've got to remember is all those folks out there you think you aren't in common with, you probably are in common with. 
It's about time you stop being angry at them and started embracing their ideas and standing with them so that together we can go against the larger problem versus the squabbling amongst us that's going on right now. 2020 has been a terrible time of political game playing. And we've got to move beyond that. We can't let these news sources do that to us where we're literally choosing sides that mean nothing. As the big boys are playing their cards behind the scenes, we all stay distracted, hating the group. That to me seems to be like how to start a maturity amongst ourselves where we work together. We, yeah. we drop this liberal conservative nonsense and we look at each other as humans with the same goal, protecting the resources that keep us paid, protecting the resources that we enjoy and love. And that includes recognizing a necessary relationship with indigenous populations. There is something there. And it's time we started tapping into them as a, as a, as a guide versus as a historical sort of norm where there, there's something that we can't relate to. They're not on our page. Listen, man, they love their kids yep. the same way you love your kids. They need food and shelter and water and support and love the same way you do. Those connections need to be far more important. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's another well said. I think the the whole pol- political thing. I think that's again fly fishing. I just keep going back to this why it's such a cool space to be right. in because there's tons of conservatives, there's tons of liberals, there's a mix of people and you know, I tend to I don't talk about politics on here just because I know that you know if you start talking about that it just goes the wrong way and No, we don't want to do that, no. dude. We, we we don't want to be a part of that, man. No. We're far brighter than that. Yeah. We in 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 nature Animals don't do that. It's a survival of life. And yet we've decided to put that to such a priority that suddenly we're forgetting we're actually animals as well on a planet. And basics still measure our performance. It's ridiculous how far down the rabbit hole of politics we've let this happen. And that's what we got to remember. The Internet is a beautiful thing, but you got to be disciplined, man. You can't let it do that to you. Yeah. So, yeah, I appreciate that. I, I did want to dig in really quickly just the Amazon. I mean, obviously, okay. you, you just see you see the things about the burning of the forest and mowing it down with excavators and, and, and all that stuff. What, um, you know, I mean, how do you, like the government, so it seems like, is there, how do you stop that government thing? I mean, it seems like, so these local communities, if you give them, like you're doing, a chance to protect me, how do they fight the, the government? And is it, how, compare that to say, a, I don't even know what the government is. Like, compare it to say, like, you got Mexico, which is this crazy thing, right, with all of that. But how, how is Ecuador different from everything else? Well, it's important to remember the Amazon's cut into several different nations, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, Brazil, which has a large part of the Amazon, and all the burning that you saw before the COVID period, that President Jair Bolsonaro and all that burning going on for him is economic. He wants to sell it to cattle. He wants to grow corn. He wants to grow all these crops that can function in the first world economy. He wants to create a first world economy for Brazil. So all that aggressive destruction of Amazon of indigenous populations, the assassination of leaders, really shady stuff. That stuff is going on in countries so far from us. Looking at the Amazon and South America is like looking at North America. Is New York City anything like Nahalem? All you do is speak English and you use the same money. Otherwise, it's a completely different planet. There is the same reality here. The Amazon is massive. And where we are in the Pastaza, grab a map, look at the town of Banos, the town of Puyo, Tena, and see what I'm talking about. The Pastaza is the largest province in Ecuador. It, it, it borders Peru. It borders um, all sorts 
of land. Some of it is so far, the, the resources are so difficult to get that these industrialists are having and always have had a hard time mm. getting to it. It's incredibly rough country. So the attempt at putting in roads, roads are always a scary part of industrialization. In fact, a lot of the roads that have been built are still secretly built with contracts behind the scenes. If I would say anything about our government, they don't play straight. They talk a game, but they don't play straight. We now have a President Lasso, who is a banker. Um, he replaced a President Lenin, who had a social agenda. He got pounded by something called the Arpado. The IMF has such a strong persuasion here because they give money. Yep. China gives money. These countries try to jump into the first world, and in doing so, thousands and millions are left behind. Their shady behavior is notorious. I would say of the electorate that I talk to, they have zero faith in their government. They don't believe anything will change. Um, reality being, they live in such impoverished conditions that they have to think about themselves right now, today. They don't have the ability to consider the larger picture. They can in a conversation briefly. They're misinformed. So their government to them is almost like this Leviathan that lives on this other planet. It operates completely separate to the people. Most of the concepts that are going on right now in modern news and modern American economic history here are related to relationships with China, IMF, the states, the yeah. countries that want the trees, the countries that want the water, the countries that want the petroleum. They're the ones the government's trying to make happy. The nation here, most of the communities are overlooked. Most of the communities are often... Um, given very little attention to, to actual needs. You see this over and over again. So these people, ironically, Dave, are incredibly durable. Yeah. They are very capable. Um, where we live, everywhere we, where we live, if the money stream ended, there would still be food here. There'd be no electricity and there'd be no resources socially, but there'd be food. These people are used to taking care of themselves. They're extremely resourceful. They know how to do a lot of things. They're very connected. We live in a community right now where there's not a single white person here. Everybody's an Ecuadorian, a fisherman. Everyone grows food. They have animals in the hills. They're always ready. I don't know if they do that because they expect an end or they just do that because it's always been tough. It's not like Americans where there's so many resources. You pop into a fast food restaurant, yeah. you get a hamburger, off you go. You don't have that here. Um, we are 30 miles from a gas station. Hmm. On a two a two lane road that's windy, it take me. I have an old sixty six Land Rover. It takes me forty minutes to get gas. Um, there is no hospital here. There is no doctor here where we are. There is no cops. There's no cop station. There's no police here. They drive through occasionally, but you never really see them. The place is essentially lawless. It's controlled like most of these communities by the people that live there, and their civility is what allows the place to not completely fall apart. They all kind of have something to gain by working together. So if you have thieves or problems, usually they're from the outside. Usually in the communities, they work better when people don't disrupt the problem, the flow. Wow. Well, that is just that right there, that point, the fact that there's no, you know, police as we know it. You'd crack up, dude. The cops here are like, the cops here, are com they're completely different. It's so different. And Dave, when you're in the Amazon, okay, there is zero cops. The cops, the cops are afraid of indigenous they don't go to those communities ever. 
if if you have anyone coming, it's a petroleum guy trying to get the community to get sign on and get letting them drill on their land. So they have this nice proposal. They give a bunch of gifts. And then you might have healthcare workers arrive and check people um, for various diseases. I mean, there's a lot of intense stuff in the jungle, dengue, malaria, yellow fever. There's things that are really dangerous. You have lots of snakes. You have, I remember we were at a community, Uwimi, and uh, this one guy, we were staying, we had our tent on his, uh, next to his house. And uh, it was kind of the, uh, the fringe of the, of the community. It was a long boat ride, a seven-hour boat ride to get there down the Rio, Chico Copataza, Rio Copataza. And uh, he had all these feral dogs, like 10 of them, that were just kind of running around the outside of his property. And eventually I was like, why do you have so many dogs? You know, what's, what's going on? He tells me that fairly regularly, once or twice a week, a jaguar will come into the Jeez. camp and steal their children and their chickens and everything. So these dogs are basically out there. They go crazy. One of them gets killed. And that's how the community knows that a jaguar, that's the kind of world they live in. I mean, it sounds amazing. That's the thing for me. I mean, I love that. You know, I mean, that's just, that's wild. You know, it's like over here, you know, we have cougars and your chances of seeing a cougar or having an interaction are very slim in your whole life. You, you, you yeah. can spend a, a lifetime in the mountains and never see a mountain lion or cougar. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But but no, this is uh, well, I'm glad you're painting the picture. here. I did want to just on again, maybe we take it a little bit further. You talked about this is like the day of the life of Greg. Just to, for a second, just t- tell us like, t- you know, a normal week or a normal day. Break that down. What does that look like for you? OK, right now or when we're working in the Amazon? Uh, well, let's see. I guess I don't even know. I mean, what do you do? So your film's done. I mean, what do you I, what is the difference? Like, when would you go to the Amazon versus where you're at now? Well, right, right now, we have a project, interestingly enough, we're working on in the States, uh, a grizzly bear trader named Doug Seuss. They've hired us to do a biography of his life. So he is, his, 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 his bear, Bart, was in Legend of the Fall and um, The Edge. It's a really large Hollywood bear uh, that has been used in a lot of films. So currently, I'm editing a project for them. That's their information. I'm working as an editor. So that would mean that my job currently is that project guided by them. I'm an employee. They're directing it, in fact. So I'm following their leads by internet communication Hmm. to finish their project. I live on the beach in Las Tunas. We're right on the ocean. So here I surf, we fish, I dive. We have um, an old land rover, so we access up into the mountains. Um, A normal day here would be getting my son to school, which is about 50 minutes from here in Iampe. Coming back here, working on the computer for a second, going down to the beach, depending on what the waves are doing. Um, around here, we eventually hit the market, get some roots and vegetables. We have a garden we grow in the back. Um, we've been here on the coast since we got back in October. Well, that's not true. We've been here since uh, February. We were in the jungle for two months, and then we came out here. And we came out here specifically because all schools were closed, and we wanted Alon to be in a school. He turned six this coming Monday. And the school out here, Iampi, was open. It's a Montessori school. Lonnie has a background as a Montessori teacher. So we were very proud to have him in this school. So we're out here in Las Tunas because of him. We want him in this school. In September, we'll probably do a trip back to the Amazon to connect with Luis. I have a lot of ideas about creating this independent economy and beginning the next process of Sendero de Vida, which is how to get certain products, I think agricultural products started there that we can use along with tourism to create an independent economy for these communities. 
Cool. That is very cool. Yeah, that sounds, I mean, you just painted a picture of, I mean, I know that sounds like place I could just retire, right? I mean, retiring is kind of an old, an old worn out word, but I mean, it sounds amazing, right? You're on the beach, you're fishing, you're diving. Is there, I mean, what's the, what's the drawback? It sounds like it's perfect. Well, for me, Dave, I love it because I'm, um, I'm more connected to nature. I'm a happier man. And this is a place where nature is everywhere. I'm not sure about everyone. Um, when I was in the States, my dad passed away April 5th. So I was in the States for quite a bit of 2020 to help my mom. And I was seeing a lot of people with a really heavy digital addiction. And I, I therefore, uh, would say they probably would have a hard time at first because you really have to accept the loss of convenience and comfort. Now, Comfort is a very tricky word, and convenience is also a tricky word. I get more out of life when I get to do something, when I can fix my own world, I fix my own car. If I need to repair my roof, I go do it. Um, I like that kind of life better. But a lot of people, I don't know if they would. I can't speak for them. Um, I know this works for me. Uh, I don't own a cell phone. I don't use Facebook. I don't use Instagram. I don't Twitter. I'm not caught up. I do watch occasional uh, YouTube videos, because it's interesting to me, some of the history that's coming out with this year of pandemic, some of the truths are starting to come out about the pandemic. And there's a lot of things that are very personal about vaccinations, wearing masks, social distancing, lockdowns. These are things that affect all of us. So you've got to be informed. But honestly, I don't know if a lot of people right now, especially the younger generation, would like this as much because you're not connected at all like you are on the States. Yeah. That's it. The, the, so I don't know. The, yeah, the no connection. You don't have a, you don't have a cell phone tower next. I mean, how are you getting your? Uh, is this all? How are you doing your internet? How are we talking now? No, I have I have internet, and we have internet, and sometimes the internet's terrible. This house that we had because of this grizzly project, we insisted on having a good internet connection, and that's how I'm communicating with you. Internet is definitely here. We don't have five G, but we definitely have internet. Um, some areas it's harder to get internet, the jungle, they don't have internet parts of the mountain. They don't have internet, but where we are right now, there is internet, there is internet, an internet server that works here. And there's a month to month program like anywhere that you can have so that you can be online. And I have my editing equipment here. I have a, a mini Mac, which I use for editing. And then I'm communicating with you. So I have to have that if I'm going to do this grizzly project or any kind of projects at a certain point, I got to feed my family and, down here, the econ- economy is much different. So we make a little bit of money doing things like that, and we're able to continue moving forward. We have a very minimal life. We have zero bills. We don't pay a credit card company. We don't have cell phone bills. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have a car payment. I don't have insurance payments. I don't have monthly payments. I pay rent here. That's or off. Most of the time, when I lived in Chimaloma, when I lived in Mashkana and Riobamba, we didn't pay rent. We traded work for rent. Hmm. So a lot of times you don't have the economic pressures that you have in the States. That's one thing here that's very different. It's a lot different. You use a lot less money. Money goes a lot further here than in the States, a lot further. Some of the expenses in the States that you people have in places that are kind of cute like Manzanita and Halem, some of the prices of food and stuff. I can go on a week on 20 bucks. That's amazing. What what's your um just curious, uh, rent. What 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 do you what do you pay for rent there? Um we have a two bedroom, two bath house on the beach, uh, with a little backyard. Uh we pay hundred and fifty bucks a month. I yeah. pay him every I pay him for two months. 
There you go. So it's basically a tenth, well, depending on where you live, but it's one tenth of what you might pay. On, on the beach. On, and yeah, well, it's probably more than, more, more than one tenth because you're on the beach. You're in this amazing. We walk out on my front door to the sand. Yeah, yeah. You're probably more like, yeah, if that, if that was in Southern California, it would be a. a, a oh, it'd be four grand. Yeah, it'd be four grand or more. And or it'd be, 40 it would grand. be more than that. This, this would be a primo apartment in, in Southern California. In the Amazon, so for October, November, December, January, when we were traveling, we were camping in our tent. One thing that we do when we travel and when we go to the Amazon, we stay in our tent. We bring our own tent. I hike in like you would when you're backpacking. You're a good backpacker. Yeah. And I, I arrive prepared. I have to charge equipment. I got to keep things dry. I have obviously dry bags. I got to keep my cameras, my batteries, all of my sound equipment. It's got to stay dry. So we're, we arrive with gear. Um, one of the things that's at our first trips, especially, uh, it was very haunting. You're very remote in the Amazon. You have you pull out a camera, the whole place is like put into a spell. Wow, what is that thing? The kid, the kids, the kids are crawling around you. There, what is that thing? As far as they're concerned, that makes you incredibly rich. And those are things that you must be very aware of when you come here. If you show off your toys, your toys are going to get stolen. Oh, wow. You've got to be very conservative. You've got to be trusting of yourself, but you got to also know when to put that stuff away. One of the tricks of working here and knowing how to film these communities is sometimes you just don't film. Some people you can tell just don't like it, and you have to honor that. So many things went down that we didn't film, and I knew we couldn't. The ayahuasca ceremony, for example, we did that several times. We only filmed it once. Many people were not comfortable with that. To them, that's a sacred place. And that is one of the relationships you've got to sort of nuance. It's got to be like an instinctual feeling. How are you going to work? Your buddy that has this indie biz, he comes down here with gear. He knows firsthand that gear is something that shows money. And the people see that and go, okay, this guy's got money. You have to be careful. As a white guy, you're coming into a place where you everybody is dark-skinned. Everybody's got different bone structure, different height, different body type. There are totally different kind of genetics. You're taller, white-skinned. You're very novel. And when you're in those communities where everybody is a different type of person, different look, everything, you have to be aware that everywhere you go, you attract attention. Now, out of 100 people, it just takes one crappy uncle to cause trouble. Everybody else has got a heart of gold. But one bad person can make your experience terrible. So your guides, your instincts, your ability to smile, your ability to, when they, what they love to do is they love to make jokes about me. They're constantly making jokes about me. And you have to be able to laugh at those jokes. If you can't handle that, you will not like it here. Because as far as they're concerned, they don't understand why you're even there. They think, why would you even come here? Yeah. It doesn't make sense to them. Um, you have to be able to sort of slowly get their attention, slowly get their trust. You keep returning, you keep returning, you start noticing they're a lot more open. The next time you come back, wow, now you're filming that ceremony that you weren't filming before. Before she was, wasn't into it, now she wants you to. So it just takes time. They kind of operate slow. They kind of operate with lots of analysis. They do a lot of talking. Whenever you show up in a community, we spend the first day talking. Lonnie is out doing her thing with the rest, usually with the kids. And I'm sitting with all the men, drinking chicha, talking. 
a lot of it's in schwar. I know some schwar words, but I don't speak schwar. So a lot of it is very slow. They're basically getting your confidence. They're asking you questions. All of this, Dave, is in Spanish. So <laughs> it it asks quite a lot of me. It, it sounds like a, definitely a... I mean, there must be quite a, I mean, the, the emotional exchange, right? Is that, what is that like? I mean, you go into these communities, you see all this stuff. I mean, there must be some good, some bad, you know, what do you feel like at the end of the day when you go and do your trip to the Amazon? I mean, I'm sure you have stories about, you know, all crazy stories, but when you get back, what do you feel? Are you just drained or how, how do you feel? Um, what we do is we hit a town called Banos. We get a pizza and we go soak in the hot springs. And yes, I am drained. Uh, the Amazon's a lot of work. The food is really challenging. It is a, an intense hiking environment. Um, uh, you come across poisonous snakes and all kinds of dangerous scenarios. Uh, they're fearless people. Uh, they're fast hikers, some of the strongest hikers I've ever hiked with, and I grew up with fast hikers. Um, they're very tough people. They're uh, very durable. Uh, you're sometimes in places where some of the men are very intense, a little bit intimidating, you wonder the true intentions. You don't really know. And we were going to talk about Sansa, which is, of course, the the, the shrunken heads yeah. culture. When you have something like that sort of um, in the history of these people and you realize that a lot of their history was war, they were constantly fighting. They are constantly hunting. You realize these are really tough people and you probably wouldn't get very far if you tried to take them on. So you've got to be smart and you've got to have a good guy. When you get really, here's what I really learned. When you get deep in the Amazon, it gets more intense. The more you get away from civilization, the more you get away from any influence of civilization, it gets more intense and you're more on your toes. You're more sensitive to people's needs. You're really aware that these people hear everything. They smell everything. They see everything. They really are um, naturally driven. That's their world. Yeah. They don't have any any technology. They may have electricity one day a week because they have a generator they turn on one day a week. That's it. And five years before that, they didn't even have that. Um, some of the communities are closer to the road. So they have access to Puyo or Macas, which are larger cities where there's a bus station and there's more resources, there's mechanics and there's stores. Those indigenous populations are a little different. They have more cell phones. They don't have the newer ones, but they have more cell phones. Uh, they're a little more influenced by the dress, by the clothes, um, by that desire to have stuff. They're the ones that would be thieves more often than the ones in the jungle. Yeah. In the jungle, the deep jungle, the people were impeccably honest, and you felt like you were around incredibly high-integrity people. When you get closer to the cities, you do see shady people. It's kind of like when you get to Portland. It's all of a sudden you see some dudes on the corner that probably have bad intentions and would steal from you if they had a chance. It's kind of the same sort of comparison. It's just the Amazon is lawless. So when you're in this place, you've got to be on your toes and you've got to be listening to your guides. And I speak of Luis Kawash and his brothers. When they say something, like when we first got there, there was a tina down the street and they needed gas for the stove. So it's like, I'll shoot down there and get some gas. But the sun was going down. And they're like, no, white people do not go on the road at night. Yep. And they told me a couple of terrible stories. And so I, to this day, do not go out past Luis's little area at night when we're near the road. Those are some of the things you slowly learn. Bad things do happen out there. And you got to be careful because I'm with Lonnie. She's a beautiful blonde woman. Um, we have all this equipment. Word gets out quickly. Oh, the white guys are in town again. 
Oh, yeah, they just showed up with 10 bags of food. Oh, they have a tent. Oh, they have camera equipment. This all starts looking very attractive to those sort of um, sharks in the water that want to come and get a bite. You know, that, that's my biggest worry, and it's probably overblown a little bit, but I think about taking my girls, you know, they're seven and nine and Megan down to, a, you know, down there, which, you know, I want to do, but that's a big worry for me. I, my, my biggest nightmare, I mean, I just had a guest on, I'll put a link in the show notes, um, but he does um, the sex trafficking, right? He has this whole thing where he raises money through fly fishing to take, to take kids out of the sex trafficking, but that's like my biggest worry. Like, well, you know, it, unfortunately, I've heard enough terrible stories that I would have thought were fiction that I don't think it's illegitimate. Now, I wouldn't take you anywhere, your kids yeah. anywhere, where we'd be in danger. Um, there is certain places that are higher risk, but your friend is um, in a noble path. It's, it's real. Lots of kids go missing, unfortunately, more than you want to have to accept. Um, it is a, a real problem. And because of the internet, you have clients with twisted brains out there that, um, you know, we've seen a lot of this come up lately, you know, the Epstein stuff and how many people have a really weird view on children. And these are easy targets. Um, one thing that's good is the communities are really talking about it. So it seems like they're paying more attention to that. And they're, before, if you arrive in a community, one of the things that you'd crack up on instantly, these kids are fearless. They're not watched by their parents. Their older brother watches the kids, and all of them watch each other. And they're ripping around everywhere, climbing everything, jumping off everything. They swim like fish. <laughs> they, these little kids that you'd be like, oh, my God, is that kid swimming? <laughs> I would never let Elon do that. They're out running around fearlessly. That's something that's really different when they, with raising kids. Those kids grow up charging, all right? They yep. are really active and athletic, man. They are incredibly athletic, swinging from things and really capable in the water. And they got to be. That's where you get your food. You got to be able to walk a long ways with mom because you're going to the next community or you're off hunting. There is reality that adds to that. Those kids are raised to be on the move and they really are. It's an impressive crowd. These kids are fearless. They are just endlessly charging around. They don't have many toys. The toys they have, they make out of leaves boats, et cetera, stuff that they're just continually in their imagination is kin continually thriving. And I, I was very impressed my initial visits and then to this day with that way of raising kids, that full blown natural world as your imagination. That was a very impressive. And it tells me why when I'm in these communities and I'm around people that I'm like, these people are solid. This is yeah. a very special group of people right now. And it's because you see their kids growing up, knowing what's poisonous, knowing what's good and what's bad. And they're forming their ideas through experience versus the world we live in where we're regurgitating and memorizing ideas without experience, which I think takes away from your common sense. But that's just an opinion. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, you know, Greg, there's so many topics here. We've been, you know, I've the, the grizzly bear thing you noted, the, the little bit of the fishing and, I mean, the shrunken heads are, we're not going to get to a lot of this. So I think we're going to have to have maybe a, a re, a second episode down the line. But I did want to touch on one thing because this is pretty powerful. And especially for me, when I think of my dad, you know, because he, you know, he's in his mid eighties. It feels like maybe he's getting dementia. I don't know. I mean, he, he's, he's not going to be around forever and you lost your dad. And I, and I just want to touch on this because, you know, to, to prep me and other people when they get to that point, how did you deal with that? Your dad passed away last year. What, what was that? Take us to that. 
Well, let me just say this. My dad was an excellent fly fisherman, a guide yeah. in the air, Elko. He, threw, he was mainly throwing his rod around South Fork. Uh, people that know the area will know what I'm talking about. Um, quite a bit in the Ruby Marshes. And then we grew up in Reno, so the Chucky River was a oh, favorite wow. spot. As a kid, we fished a lot. The Weezer River, the Payette, up near the Sawtooth, a bit in Montana. My mom was born in Big Timber. So I, I grew up on the water. I grew up fishing. I grew up eating fish. I grew up with my grandfather and my father. So I say all that because my father was a great father. He had me outside all the time. He loved to hike. He loved to be on the rivers. He loved to be in the mountains. And we spent all of our time in that environment. And I was very close to him because those are the things that I love. That's what I have for my son now. Um, when my dad started going downhill about two years to April 5th, 2020, it was very evident that his mind had changed, Dave. And that's the process that's the most challenging. Um, when my dad went, honestly, April 5th, it was a good thing. He was no longer John Collette, the man that we knew. The whole community would say the same. My brothers would say the same. My mom would say the same. And that was really, honestly, a blessing. He was suffering. He made it clear that he was suffering. One of the things I would tell people is really steer away from strong um, medicines that the doctors often give to deal with your father and maybe problems he's having. Some of those medicines were very hard on my dad, who was a very healthy man until the medicine started becoming a part of his life. The last couple of years, the medication became a central part of his thought process. And he really fell so far away from uh, who he was that the last two years were more, especially the last six months, were more of just sort of my dad was physically in the room, but he was nothing like the man that I, that I knew. He had been diagnosed with Lou body dementia, which is a type of toxicity dementia. It's a very confusing diagnosis. Um, there was medication given to him. He visited many doctors in Salt Lake, which is the closest large city, but that's a good hospital. University of Utah is a good hospital. He visited the vet hospital many times as well. My mom was fearless in trying to figure out how to help him. My mom is all about nutrition, so she was basically about feeding him well, keeping him healthy, and relying on the immune system to do the work. But there was so much influence from doctors to give him medication that my dad became an addict of medication, mm. unfortunately. And the last years especially, I would say there was as much influence of medication as there was the dementia itself. Dementia is a terrible thing. Um, he was panicky. He was full of anxiety. He was absolutely self-absorbed. He lost empathy for family and others, which is something my father was an absolute opposite. He had the biggest heart in town, and he was known for helping people. That was his M.O. He was unable to walk, go outside. He wouldn't go hiking anymore. These were the things my dad did all the time. So when you start seeing this stuff happen, um, if you can, stay away from the medication. If you can, think about ways that keep you with your father as he starts losing his memory, as he starts losing who he is. Now, that's going to be hard because the Western world, we're so addicted to giving medication to these people. This is something that my family learned. We had no experience on this. My mom never used medication. So all of this was new. It was influenced from the medical world. Hmm. They don't always know everything. And in this case, I would say, if you can, keep your father close to you the way he is. Try to nurture the way he is. Try to be supportive and recognize that he's losing grip. He's panicking. In my dad's case, he was panicking. Hopefully for you, 
It's different. Um, not all older men or women get a type of dementia. A lot of them age with, with grace. Lonnie's grandma was quite old, and she was a very graceful aging process. And being around her was very different than my father. My father was very panicky, and he was very worried. And he had this medication addiction um, that was extreme. So that was difficult. And it caused friction and, and troubles in the family. The people that are alive are the ones that are dealing with this. You're trying to figure out what to do. There's different opinions. Then, of course, you have his aunts and his uncles. His brother was still alive, who was a doctor. So all this influence was difficult to figure out, combined with the fact that your dad is falling apart in front of you. So um, it's a very difficult process. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm still figuring it out a year later. I can say this. If you have any grief with your father, get it canceled. Go and fill your heart with the love that needs to be there and go to your father and iron out the problems so that when he goes, you don't feel regrets. He's the ones leaving. You're going to be here. And those regrets are like a splinter in your mind. I think they slow you down. They make life harder. And it makes you maybe even less prepared to deal with the problems that are going to happen to you. So with me, I had, I did that. My dad and I were tight. He went out. I was fully in his embrace. He was very proud of me. I loved him dearly. I explained to him many times as his brain was falling away how thankful I was that he was my father. Saying this gives me goosebumps mm -hmm. because it was true. He was a great father. I, had, I got lucky. And because my dad was such a great father, I've had the great life and the great experiences and taken the risks that I've taken. Um, without him, I wouldn't even be here. And all of this, uh, my dad saw Ecuador, thankfully. Mm. He didn't make it to the Amazon, but he made it to our house in Chimbaloma, where we lived above Otavalo. And he loved it because they're farmers, and my dad's a cowboy, and he loves <laughs> animals. So I'm lucky. But the last two years, dude, the last six months specifically, I know I could speak for my whole family, was a drudgerous sort of hell. And then COVID happened. Yeah. So you had personal <laughs> nightmares. And then this whole shutting businesses, all this political grief. It was a hell of a, of a year, 2020. Let, let me just, I'm just curious because I've just, I've heard a couple of everything. Just as far as COVID in, um, I mean, there at that country, has it just been restricted? Nobody's coming in or out. And so COVID isn't there. At first there was restrictions at the border. Um, and then mask wearing, They've had the schools shut for an entire year, which is ironic because, like I told you, in the Amazon and in the mountains, there's no Internet. And Internet education is what the kids are getting. So basically for one year, in these communities, they've been cut out of the education system that would come from the government, which is interesting. I have a lot of opinions on why this has happened. Truthfully, these indigenous populations would survive just fine if the economy collapsed because they already grow food and they already know how to take care of themselves. They would not, they would be affected, don't get me wrong, but they would survive. They are community driven, they're family driven, and they have resources. They grow food. They'd make it. On the beach, these are fishermen. They have fish. They would feed the community. When every single day they bring in fish, once a week, they will gather with their net and the whole community will go down, they'll give fish away to the whole community. So everybody gets fed. Um, that's a, a type of socialized, socialized history that defines Ecuador. And that's why Lonnie and I live here. We love that. That's something I think America could use a little more of this independence, cutthroat competition that we have been raised on in the States, in my opinion, 
is not the only way. There's ways to have capitalism work because I love capitalism, but you got to know how to help your brother also. You can't just want to grow, constantly grow. You got to have satisfaction. Um, COVID here in the communities like this one is no big deal. In the jungle, they laugh at it. Yep. In the mountains, they don't take it seriously. In the cities, Guayaquil, I'm sure people saw footage of Guayaquil and Quito. COVID's a much bigger issue because what happened is they promoted it on the internet to such a degree because, come on, COVID would not exist without the internet. Yeah. It would have arrived on the shores of various countries. People would have figured it out like they have for hundreds of years, and that would have been that. COVID was a platform on the internet that made this whole bigger conversation and this whole type of institutionalized conversation become much bigger than it ever would have been. So here in the cities, if you got COVID or you thought you had COVID, everybody rushed to the hospital. Oh, so wow. the hospitals were masked. So this was great for the news because it showed, oh, gosh, look how bad COVID is in Ecuador. Mm. What we learned in Guayaquil, for example, there was an all-time massive 10-year outbreak of dengue. So dengue and COVID, as some studies have shown, was quite fatal. So a lot of our issues with COVID in Guayaquil, for example, included also dengue fever. But it was not a good thing. These hospitals are social hospitals and that they're free. There is good care here, but it's not like the States. It's expensive in the States, but America does have top shelf care. And all these hospitals were so inundated with people who were so afraid of COVID. A lot of people that have gotten COVID, as you know, hundreds of millions, I've been fine. They they were sick for four or five days. I mean, you have probably have many friends. I have many friends that have gotten COVID. And that was that. Um, in the smaller towns, there wasn't much COVID. In the bigger cities like Vegas and Los Angeles and Seattle and Portland, there was a lot more. That's the same here. In the small towns, there's no COVID in the cities. And the cities is where uh, most of our problems have existed and most of the fear has existed. I haven't entered into a city since I've been here. That was even in Nevada. I went to Salt Lake once and I never went back. I probably yeah. won't go to Salt Lake again because <laughs> the cities were a nightmare. Um, and that was obvious. Uh, you just need to watch a tad bit, talk to a few friends, you know, give Boyack a call. And he was filling me in on Portland. I was like, forget that. Yeah. I'm not going anywhere near a city. So I haven't been in a city, dude. I've been the entire time in what we call Campa, which is the farms. In the jungle, we're out in the village. Uh, the only place that I would have any transmission was in buses. I've taken hundreds of buses and hundreds of taxis. Um, I don't wear a mask. I never have worn a mask. I think they're ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I wash my hands. But I'm always paying attention to disease because literally in the Amazon and in these communities, in these neighborhoods, you've got to pay attention to the diseases. we got yellow fever. we got dengue fever. we got real problems that can really make you sick and take you out. So we're always paying attention to, to health issues. Lonnie is always paying attention to kids that got coughs. We're always paying attention to that. Right. And one of the problems with him, him being in school is that kids have coughs, kids get sick, but he's been sick twice. That's life. Your kids are in school. They get sick. That's what happens when you're on other kids. Um, yep. COVID is really mainly a problem in the cities. Gotcha. And what, the, what this government's going to do with restrictions, because to get people to wear masks, they told them if you don't wear a mask, get a $100 fine. Uh. That's how they did it. And <laughs> we, we are in that way, we are an arm of the IMF. The IMF says it, so Ecuador's got to do it because they owe IMF money. Uh, so in so many ways, the government here had their hands tied. Yeah, gotcha. All right, well, that's good. Thanks for the little taster on the uh, on the COVID thing. So uh, fish, let's just quickly go into fish. So what fish, t- talk about some of the species you've caught or the people have caught around there. 
off the beach, you might catch a shark. Um, I have a small, uh, my line is a small leader. So I break anything I throw out here. You have much better luck with a net in the water or going off the rocks with a spear gun or catching with a net off the rocks. Oh, cool. Better luck, better luck catching lobsters. Um, there's like a kind of rockfish out here. Um, I brought one home just the other day. It's a smaller version of that. Um, there is octopus and stuff. I refuse to eat octopus because they're so smart. Hmm. Um, but around the rocks, you have a lot of oysters. You have a lot of shellfish that are there. And the oysters here are not quite as good as the ones in Pacific, but um, they are good. They're much smaller. But, of course, an oyster is an oyster, right? Hmm. Uh, this area for fishing, the majority of the fishing is done with boats as they take out into the water, depending what they're looking for. It is possible to charter a boat out of Puerto Lopez or Salongo and go out into deeper waters. And out there we saw, when we were in Salongo, we lived in Salongo, we saw a massive marlin that they had caught and brought in that was massive, dude. I mean, I don't know how big. Yeah. It was as big as an entire truck. It was the biggest marlin I've ever seen. And I've, I've fished a marlin in Baja, California before, and this is the biggest one I've ever seen. Um, people are catching some sharks. Um, I've never caught a shark. Any cat, any any uh, luck I've had out here on the beach, my line broke. So yeah, um, no, I've cool. got to change my change my line, get a little thicker gauge. And then what we're doing now is we're waiting on the whales to migrate. We might do a fishing trip out of Puerto Lopez when the whales start migrating, which happens in July, August, kind of right now, but July, August, the humpback whales migrate through. So we might start um, go on a fishing trip and go for some whales and do those together. I haven't gone out on a boat since I've been here uh, and fished off of a boat. So I don't have only what I've seen being brought in, which is a lot of Dorado, hmm. um, a lot of tuna. Yeah. Uh, some, some of the line tunas, pretty good size. They're not massive, but pretty good size. Um, different kinds of sharks. Uh, what else have we seen? Yeah. Sardines, they, sardines, et cetera, they catch, they catch with nets. Um, so you're seeing some Dorado. Yeah, a lot of Dorado. Dorado's hot right now. Yeah, like, when you when you buy yeah. if you buy ceviche, if you buy ceviche in town, um, wonderful ceviche here. You buy ceviche in town, generally it's Dorado. I wonder if that's there's probably a few different species, but golden Dorado is the one we hear a lot about. That that's one of the people yeah. Are heading I don't think it's a golden, but I think it's one like that. Um, where you are, the water's a little colder. The water here is a lot warmer. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm thinking just just you know throughout South America. I know Golden Draw. There's a few places down okay. in South America where you could people, be right. Yeah, people are heading for Golden Draw. And we had a, the marlin. We had an episode actually I did with the guy who's the expert on catching uh, sailfish on the fly rod, which is freaking ki- crazy. Though. Holy smokes! Yeah. I'd love to see that, dude. Yeah, yeah. You can listen to that one. That's in our back catalog. Uh, Jake Jake Jordan. It was a. a I'll, write, I'll write that down and I will check that out. I yeah. Mean, that, the, the, the marlin they brought in, we were in our apartment, was so darn big. was five dudes carried that thing and put it in a truck. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's the biggest I've ever seen. They, I mean, it was that, yeah. that was a huge-ass fish. Fly fishing has gotten so um, niched down. The gear, the gear especially, the, the, the gear they have is just, I mean, they're literally catching these, I don't even know how big they are. They're probably, you know, 10-foot sailfish on a fly rod. It's crazy. Or whatever I've never even heard that. I'm sure that happens, but I haven't heard of it. Well, th- those kinds of folks, wh- where are they usually headed? Where does he do his fishing? Well, he, California area? well, more down towards you. I mean, like out of 
yeah, some of those places they go offshore, you know, quite a ways. They've got, you know, they got yeah, they're they're going out hundreds of miles offshore or something. But yeah, they got these places they're going to, and then he described the whole thing. You can listen to it; it was a great episode. He talked about how yeah, they, I totally will. That's yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's easy to get a boat chartered out here. Uh, people are eager to do it, and a lot of these guys are you know lifelong fishermen, so they know where to take you. There is um, some pretty big factory trawlers, but generally it's a local fishing community with fairly, you know, 10 guys on a boat, even less, um, no cabin, and uh, they're throwing nets and throwing lines. Most of them, uh, it's a pretty local group. Usually, usually they're, it's in the family, you know, usually it's Papa and his kids and the neighbors. Um, yeah. They, they obviously keep a, you know, a pretty weird schedule because they work at night. But uh, in some of these towns, Salongo, Puerto Lopez, uh, less and less Tunis, you know, you get up the, near Guayaquil, that's all they do is fish. You know, there's a lot of fishing going on. You probably know camarones or shrimp or the, or the langostinos. That had, I think, one or two of the largest exports that Ecuador has mm. right now. And a lot of that is farmed. A lot of that they, yep. they do the same. They, do with, they, they have these. That's a different kind of camarone. But the ones that they catch out here, which a lot of times what we'll do at our house is fishermen will drive around the town and sell fish to you. They stop in front of your house and you buy it from them. And a lot of times I do that because it's really inexpensive and it's easy. Hmm. There you go. All right, Greg. Well, um, I mean, there, there's like, like always, you know, there's a few things I'd like to dig into. Uh, before we get out here, I just want to touch on this because, again, it's one of those topics, the shrunken head things. Can you give us a little Cliff's Notes to the, the, the shrunken head? Like why, what was that all about back in the day? And, and then, you know, why were they doing that? It's an old uh, form of, I guess you'd say, spiritual safety the idea was when you fought your enemy it was required that you shrink the head over fire you put rocks in the head and it becomes about half the size of a normal head you sew up the mouth and eyes the idea is that the spirit of the previous person would escape into your lodge and cause hell on your lodge so by sewing up the head and sewing up the eyes they can that spirit cannot escape and cause damage and harm to your family to yourself so the shrunken heads was really done literally as a pragmatic form of keeping the spirit of the previously killed um, warrior out of your lodge and out from causing hell upon you. It's a very odd concept, but they basically would pull all the inside of the head out. They boil the head. They put rocks in the head. It shrinks around the rocks. They sew up the eyes. And this is how they kept the spirit of that person killed in that person instead of it coming into your world and causing you harm. Wow, wow. So they would, so I guess I was thinking about this differently. They literally, this is during war, they would, they kill the, 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 you know, the enemy and then they yes. cut their head off, empty yes. out, and then, and then they'd take these heads and like have them around their village or something. Well, they, they, they would probably have them in a place that's sacred um, around the village. I don't know about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They use the heads literally as a way to keep their spirit, that spirit of the person killed from coming into their village. And causing there is lots of superstition in the Amazon. Yeah. So um, it's a very mysterious place. It's a very rough place. It's got a lot of risk, and so the warring was a regular part of all of those tribes' history, and a way that they felt possible to keep that that energy that by killing that person, that energy away from their people, their family, themselves was they would cut their head off and they perform this this art they called the shrunken head or sansa. Right. Wow. That segment's in the film, so there's oh, it a little is. more description. Oh, yeah, for sure. There's a little more. It's a very important part of their history because 
they, they did this for thousands of years. It was not just something that happened for a short period of time. It was a very old part of their history and is a very important part of their history. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, and on the film, you know, we, we touched on this, obviously, we noted at the start. Um, anything else we want to talk about the film? I know we didn't go into detail on everything. If I feel like you want to just so people have a better idea before, you know, if they wanted to watch it. You know. So our, our website is forgottafilms.com. Uh, there you'll see a links in there to Vida. There I have several videos of some of the work we've done there. The film is Schwar Sendero de Vida. Uh, the film is currently in the Japan Film Festival for the month of June. And uh, if you go Fogata at Fogatafilms.com, you can send me a email and I'd be happy to send you a link of where we're showing the film so you can see it if you wish. That's the best way to promote it. Now, Schwarz Narrative Vita right now is in film festivals. After we go through that process, we're looking to try to keep the conversation started by getting it into other venues. So that's part of um, the post-film production reality is now we have to promote it. That's the hardest part, Dave, to be honest. So promoting the project is now kind of what we're ending up with. Right now it's in film festivals. Um, as far as the film goes, I and Lonnie shot it. I am the secondary camera using GoPro cameras that GoPro uh, gave us. Lonnie uses a Canon um, 7D. She is the primary uh, film director of photography. I brought all sound equipment, and all the sound and film is done by she and I. Uh, we had people that came with us at times, but generally the entire project is she and I. We um, brought the, pro the, 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 the information back to our, our computer, and I – after learning how to edit with, like I told you about, in the Wasatch in the backcountry, I got much better. We, we, we migrated up to Final Cut X, which is what I use. So we're Mac people. And I um, then began the editing process. We ended up with about four terabytes of information. Luis also had a lot of information, maps, and sort of the, the history of the Schwar, some things that he helped me with. And then I did a lot of research getting more information about things like Sansa, and some local political and oil issues in the area. A lot of the things about the Pastaza don't just include Luis and his people. There's different indigenous populations. And we try to, if we can, we try to give the idea out that we're all in this together. These indigenous communities share one common bond. Because honestly, their history is war. Right, the common bond being that the same industrialists are arriving on their land. So protecting their land is something they all share together. So what we try to do in the film is make that clear. Luis's message in the dialogue he offers is that as well. He's bringing to the table, we all have this concern about the Amazon. We all live here. So that message is one that we want to stick with. We'd hope that people, like I said, from the very beginning there, would take this to their own forests in their own neighborhoods and have the same love for that area so that we can continue to enjoy it. In the end, that's all we can do. So the film's goal is to create that conversation. If it's to get involved in the Amazon, fantastic. Please reach out to us. We'd be happy to take you where we can take you. We'd be happy to help you. We'd love to link with folks who are interested in doing things. But at the same time, look into your own local world and tap into that place as, with the kind of passion we've tapped into the Amazon. I have strong opinions about Nevada, about yep. Oregon. Um, as you know, I've traveled a lot in the West, and there's a lot of resource, uh, natural resource um, conversations we need yeah. to have in North America as well. So we're all here for that reason, I think. In the end, we all have to work together. Perfect. 
All right, Greg, and one uh, random one. I'm just curious on, on YouTube. So you say you, you don't listen to much. Well, I guess you listen to some podcasts. Is there a, a YouTube channel or a podcast that you listen to or you want to give a shout out to? Um, I don't, man. I, do you we know one? I, I don't listen to much of that. Yeah. I, I occasionally catch up on some news because the COVID thing was such a big deal. I'm not going to say I'm, I'm, I'm the dark because I'm not. Yeah. You know, I got a good, I got a good memory and I like to be caught up. Well, what about this one then, Greg? What, what about some, uh, give me a, I, I can't remember your music. I know your listening taste. What, what is your band? If you had to pick one, one track to listen to right now, what would it be? African Head Charge. I love dub reggae music. I love pre-electronic dub reggae music. I also love classic uh, jazz. Um, uh, the bebop eras I'm fond of, of course. Uh, I'm into uh, bands like Fish Live. I love Fish. Um, I, I enjoy live music quite a bit. It's one of the real great things about North America. We do have a lot of live music here too, but there's an extreme and really lovely part about the U.S., which is, of course, rock and roll. I have a lot of LPs. You know, I've got 4,000 records. So I'm very big into music. Music without without it, I wouldn't be who I am. Uh, rock and roll is the only religion I would say I'll <laughs> stick with. Um, so it's a huge influence on me. It's a huge influence on me here. In the film, there's tons of original music from the schwar, mm. uh, from the families that are singing. They do a lot of singing, like most communities. Most Native people that we've met do a lot of singing, a lot of drumming, a lot of guitar. They, they really enjoy uh, that part. It's a big glue for everybody to get together and have a good time. So um, the music, I can never really say for, forever. I love punk rock. I love classic yeah. um, old school rock. I love, uh, I love live music in general, man. Yeah, I know we're uh, we're going we're doing a little road trip in a couple of weeks to see this this new guy. He's he's called uh, Su- Superman. Superman. Have you heard of him with the Ace? Not Superman, but Superman. Super. Super. Check him out. He's really cool. He's a uh, he's a Native American out in the Montana area, and he's he's a solid rapper. Like he's getting some a lot of the hip hop communities. Like man, this guy's legit, and he just raps about good stuff about the Native American community. And so Megan's the one that turned me on to him, and 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 so we're going yeah, to see him live. Yeah, in Billings. Yeah, Lonnie's just reminding me. We have heard of that guy. That's sick. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I mean, he's obviously somebody that um, we'd love to talk with. You know, he, he'd love the practical approach that we have yep. to native people, man. I mean, good for him. And, you know, that's that's sweet. And those are the kind of great truths about music. It really does give people that artistic flamboyance so that you hear the truth and that people aren't afraid to give the truth. And that's what's beautiful about the, it's the art. I never thought about it until a recent, uh, one of my listeners reached, talked, told me that he was like, we were talking about art and he said, he, he thought of me, he gives, he supports this podcast, you know, through a, our member kind of group. And he's like, he thought of me as an artist, you know what I mean? I never thought about that myself, but I mean, technically, I guess that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm creating my own type of art. Dave, you, you and you tell your kids the same and I tell my kids the same. Um, my life changed when I was told that by an artist I respected. And that word for me was foreign because I wasn't raised to think of myself as an artist. And now I, I only think myself as an artist. And of course you're an artist, brother. Um, the, the truth being that freedom and interpretation of this journey is the artist's journey. We all have that to offer. One of the tragic realities of institutionalized life is you're not allowed to do that. You get in line, you do your factory work, you go home, and you do it again the next day. Being an artist just means you get a chance to do what you love, man. Yep. You do this, you do this for free, and that means you love it. You know, a job you do because you get wages. 
you do this because you love it. Um, I'm down here in South America because I love it. And I'm tapped into what we're tapped into because the art of it, making a film is hard work. It takes a lot of time, but the art is reality. And I, I think you should definitely start calling yourself that because your <laughs> friend's right. Yeah, yeah, cool. All right, Greg. Hey, I'm excited to, to get down there and get the family down there and give you a, a big hug, you know, so let's, let's keep in touch. And thanks again for putting this together. Let's be in touch. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all the links, everything we covered to date, head over to wetflyswing.com slash 242. 242. Please subscribe to this show if you get a chance on your favorite app of choice. Just head down there, click that subscribe button. And this is the best chance to get updated when our next podcast goes live. Just want to remind you again, uh, Tuesday, we got a big episode with Brian Chan. Brian Chan is, if you don't know him, he's a Stillwater guru. And he breaks down cam loops and a bunch of tips on catching trout in lakes. Uh, another good one. Um, that's about it. That's a wrap. Uh, thanks again for stopping by today and supporting the show. We've got potentially some big changes coming up here in this next year. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you go over to the member society, you can join there for uh, free for a week and share your thoughts. Uh, some big stuff. Uh, it's going to uh, require a lot more um, work on my part, I guess in some ways, but also a lot more value for you. And I'd love to hear what you think about where we're going. Um, I'm not haven't quite announced it yet, um, but I'd love to hear if you think um, it's doable, if it would be helpful for you. I, I think this is our chance to really elevate um, kind of where we've been going. We've been on a good track. Things have been great, but this is a chance to kind of take it to that next level. It's almost like, I don't know what the uh, what the analogy is. I guess maybe like you're fishing your home water, um, you know, a couple days here or there, and all of a sudden you, you turn into where you're fishing. You're going every day now, and you're fishing all over the place and just covering everything. So... That's where we're going. Uh, thanks again, and looking forward to catching you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.